I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to a very special Empire podcast. There is no regular podcast this week as we're off for Christmas. Oh, yes, indeed. But we couldn't leave an empty slot in your podcast library now, could we? No, we couldn't. So here as a special pre-Christmas bonus, our Christmas present to you, if you will, is an interview with the great Hugh Jackman. His new movie, The Greatest Showman, is out on Boxing Day and is a Barnum stormy musical about how P.T. Barnum, for it is he, founded the most legendary circus this side of Monty Python's flying. It stars Jackman, of course, as Barnum, along with Zac Efron, Zendaya, Michelle Williams and Rebecca Ferguson. And it's something of a passion project for the Aussie star who has shepherded this original musical with original songs to the big screen over the course of several years. So what you're about to hear is not a career-focused piece. It's an interview that focuses mainly, very tightly, on The Greatest Showman. In particular, the difficulty of writing original songs for a musical. But there is some stuff in there about Jackman's wider career, in particular Logan, for he has had a cracking year. We've had Hugh in the podcast a few times now. He's always fun. He's always engaged. He's always interesting. And I had an absolute blast with this. And hey, you know what? I hope you guys do too. Right, that's enough Jackman splitting from me. Here is the interview. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast once again by the legend that is Hugh Jackman. Good How are you, sir? Good to see you. Yeah, good, good to see you. How are you feeling? You all right? I'm excellent. Uh, <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about movies and the cracking year you've had. Yeah, I mean, this is a, one hell of a year for you. You're going to bookend it with Logan yeah. and The Greatest Showman. Yeah. Two passion projects yeah, for I'm, you. I must admit, this is a banner year for me. <laughs> on many levels, because um, I think I seven years ago when this was starting, and particularly three years ago, so when we were starting with Logan, uh-huh. is one of those times in a career where you wake up and go, all right, I'm in this position. These movies are kind of getting made because of me. Like, mm. I understand that I'm in a position of power and I have definite instincts about how it should go. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain team I want to put together. Mm-hmm. And with both the directors and the team and, and, and the studio we worked with, it felt like I was really involved and I'm really relieved and proud not just the juxtaposition of doing like a hard-edged dramatic film like logan with action in it but then going to a musical that's one thing i'm i love but more just the investment i had in both projects and mm. how they came out yeah and both musicals as well <laughs> <laughs> which was exactly and who knew barnum could be a musical you know, i mean everyone can see wolverine dancing and singing who knew barnum had such rage issues that's that was the thing that i took away from it but the great the greatest showman is is not just a musical it's an original musical and that yeah. is a very rare beast these mm. days i mean obviously la la land came out at the beginning of the year or last year in the states uh did pretty well as far as i get it, as far as i recall but it is such a rare thing. It happens yeah. all the time on Broadway, obviously, but right. in movies is is just a rare beast. How well, difficult is it very. to commit to something like that? Uh, I've got to give props to the guys at Fox. Stacey Snyder at the time, Jim Giannopoulos and Emma Watts. These guys actually were like, yeah, let's go for it. There were times when I was a little on the fence about it. You know, I realized that doing a movie musical that is original, that fails with your name about the title, could mean it's the last chance. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> Um, and I quite like having that risk um, but the studio were really into it they were really also really into the idea of Logan mm-hmm. we had some fights along the way but in general the idea of doing something completely different and changing up what had been for them a mm-hmm. successful formula you know was a risk they didn't necessarily have to take yeah, of course yeah. Um, and so in that way it's been really interesting I'm really proud of being involved with two things that I just 
sort of trust with my gut, and not only me, a lot of the other people. Mm. I've lost. I've lost the question. I'm, I'm just talking now. But the question was uh, about original songs, really, and about yeah, how, you, how you... So it have been 23 years since yeah. uh, Hollywood had done a, an original movie musical. It was a thing called Newsies, which, ironically, my <laughs> wife was in, by the way. Really? My wife plays Christian Bale's mum in really? the movie. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and uh, that is the last... or That or fame, people say, those were the last original movie musicals. Yeah. Everything else has either originated on Broadway or like Moulin Rouge, some sort of jukebox musical. Yeah, so absolutely. It was... I thought a one in ten chance when we first took it. When the studio said, "Yeah, sure, let's let's commission a script," and the script came in, and I was like, "Oh, that's good. That's interesting. And this subject is interesting, but we've got to get the music, original music." And you know that it's really difficult to ask an audience to hear ten songs they've never heard before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be humming those tunes the next day to. Yeah love the tunes without uh-huh. having heard them before and go along with the story. That's probably why it's considered uh, a bridge too far. Yeah. Um, La La Land was being developed at the same time. Um, actually, Justin and Benj, who wrote all our music, yeah. won the Oscar for the lyrics Absolutely. for La La Land, but they were hired, I think, two years after they started working with us. <laughs> we hired them first. We saw them. Uh, we got dibs. Anyway, it's... Uh, it, it's interesting. I think, I think in general, uh-huh. I know people say, oh, movies, it's all sequels and all that, but I think a lot of risks are being taken. I think it's kind of a necessity. I think so many risks and so many uh, great uh, characters, storylines, writing are happening in TV series now. Mm. There's just such great quality that movies are having to differentiate themselves. They yeah. have to find a way to compel people to go to the movies and they've all got to be good. So when you when you uh, commission a script, an original script in a, for a film mm. like this, as a musical, and it comes in, does it is it literally like the Star Wars script where it, go, it just goes they fight? Does it now go and now they sing? There is there is a song here. Yes, but we just and, don't know and, what that song and is. And actually, for a lot of it, there wasn't even an song. Right, it could be maybe song here okay. because uh, Jenny Bix, who wrote the fir- uh, first draft, she's a writer on it. You know, she doesn't write musicals, so that is a real art in itself. How to incorporate song because songs if you if you resolve everything in the scene and then the song is just like reiterating what happened in the scene it's pretty mm. boring so the, the the songs have to be a continuation of the scene yeah. they have to advance plot they have to advance character yeah and in general the rule is if you can no longer speak in the scene you sing and if you can no longer <laughs> walk you dance so the it has to be emotional you have to have a reason basically to that's the basic theory. So, yeah. yeah, the first draft was a really good, solid sort of version of P.T. Barnum in this story. Uh-huh. Um, but no one had any idea where the music was going to be. <laughs> no one. That's amazing. And yeah. there's a very generous spread of songs in the film as well. Everybody mm. gets a moment. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets to sing. Mm. Um, was that important to you as well, that it Absolutely. wasn't just Barnum barnstorming the film? A hundred percent. Although, I mean, Barnum... <laughs> In real life, yeah. his name was everywhere. It was Barnum's <laughs> circus. It was Barnum's this. His autobiography, he boasted, was the number two bestseller next to the Bible. He <laughs> interestingly wrote three versions of his autobiography. Right, okay. When he got to the second or third, he burnt all of the copies of the number one that were still around. He bought them up and burnt them because he completely reinvented the story. I might take notes. For He's a, a great character, but he also understood. He knows what 
people want. He used to constantly say, it's a line in the movie, if you haven't been to the Barnum Museum lately, you haven't been to the Barnum Museum. So yeah. he, he knew that thing that people need to see things they don't expect. Their expectations need to be not just met but exceeded. Uh, you have to constantly surprise and amaze and create things and move them forward. Mm. I don't think Barnum would, if he was alive today... He wouldn't be in a big top ten doing a circus. I'm, I'm positive of that. I think he'd be probably around Silicon Valley somewhere doing virtual reality or doing some form of storytelling mm-hmm. that we hadn't seen before that he could get to as many people as possible and make as much money out of it as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and when, you, when, when you're putting together songs for a film like this, how many songs do you have? How many fall by the wayside during the process? Uh, oh, so many. The process. First of all, the, the process originally, and I agreed with this process hmm. was we would go out to the best and and most famous songwriters in the world so pharrell williams who's a writer producer as well mm-hmm. bruno mars guy i feel <clears throat> uh, we had Bonnie, a lot of big big names we went to all of them and michael would go and pitch it and then they would lady gaga Gwen stefani you name it we went to all of these guys so the studio felt we need to have a movie that's going to play for everybody mm-hmm. the songs have to feel like they could be in a musical but believe they live on radio there's a real pop edge to this yeah um and so that was that was the brief we thought probably 10 songs i i didn't want to do what we did in les mis which was wall-to-wall singing yeah i like the idea of the traditional musical where you have scenes going into a song um actually i think at first i was thinking six to seven i kind of thought a modern audience more than six or seven songs is probably too okay. many. How many did yeah. La La Land have? I'm La La Land only really had about six or seven. You're absolutely right. right. Yeah. So and I one of those thought, was City of Stars 25 times. So <laughs> I thought that's kind of where audiences won't allow you to break into song and dance easily anymore. Yeah. They won't just accept that. Uh, so doing it 10 times might be really difficult. True. Um, but one of my great joys is whenever I do see a musical on Broadway or in the West End, yeah. and it clicks with me in a big way, like Book of Mormon or Groundhog Day, yes. getting the soundtrack album yeah. afterwards and just playing it over and over again. Same. And that's 15, 16 songs. So yeah. you're, you're, you have to, I guess, fall so, in that middle ground in a yeah. way. Yeah. So I don't know how many we thought we'd end up with in the end. It, it, it was 10. And I think that's basically because of Justin and Benj, yeah. who wrote the music. And every single song is great. Mm. And... Um, I haven't told Justin and Benjo, they don't mind me telling him this, but telling you this. After they'd written about four or five songs, at this point they were now on board and everyone else had fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, a few lies along the way to the studio about how important <laughs> these guys were. Uh, Michael Gracie told one studio exec that they'd won a, a, a Tony Award uh, recently because they said, who are these guys? Oh, they just won a Tony Award. For what? Uh, James and the Giant Peach. And the guy goes, oh, okay. Now, there's never been a Broadway production of James and the Giant Peach. Well, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, so a few lies to get them in. Okay. Now, of course, they don't talk to us. Um, but about four or five songs in, I sent it to Baz Luhrmann because I think Baz okay. has yeah, that yeah. brilliant. And by the way, Michael Gracie, the director, worked on Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. You can probably feel it a little bit yeah, in the movie. It's got yeah. that quality. Yeah, how's that feel? Uh, and he wrote back to me. He rang me. He goes, Hugh, you've got something very rare here. And I said, what's that? And he goes, you've got, I think, three hooks. I said, I didn't know what he was talking about. He goes, a hook is the most difficult thing to write in pop music. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber had it for a while. Like, he could just write a song and it would stick in your head and you would love it. Yeah. And he, I sent him, I think, four or five. And he goes, you've got three. And he goes, if you have three total 
in your movie. That's unbelievable. He goes, <laughs> you can have a hit with two hooks in a musical and you can get by with one. He yeah, goes, yeah. you've already got three. He says, now the songs still need developing, they need producing, but don't throw that away. Like, and, and we always had that strength. I think probably the real strength of this music, musical right now is the music. Mm. I mean, uh, have you ever been tempted to write stuff yourself? A little bit tempted. Mm. But You've never done anything I where you pick up the guitar? And- I'm just getting back to the piano and learning that now. And occasionally I have some friends who write songs and uh-huh. they're like, come on in. But I, I, I have not, prior to this, enjoyed being in the recording studio. Really? Uh, yeah, I get asked to record a lot. And actually someone recently... I was amazed I got asked to record something with this person. And I just said, I, I just wrote back, I said, I love you. I just don't love me in there. Like, I don't enjoy <laughs> it. It's not a lot of fun. I get very self-critical. Uh-huh. Um, a friend of mine said, you're just not clearly drinking enough when you record. Like, no one, <laughs> no one does it sober, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you need some lubrication. That's, yeah, that's but with this, yeah. honestly, we went in so many times, so many sessions. I had a new singing teacher for two years to get that more pop sound. And uh, Justin, in particular, say, Justin yeah, Paul yeah. was in there yeah. line by line. I remember one point after a three-hour session on a song, Michael Gracie came in and said, uh, uh, he goes, he, he's heard a comp after the three hours and he goes wow Hugh this is great <laughs> like very surprised <laughs> thanks a bunch I said yeah a little too surprised <laughs> and I said yeah thanks and the, and the engineer I overheard him say there's a lot of takes <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of bludgeoned through my anyway that's my long answer to around why I may not have written I may, I may get there eventually isn't there's not like a, a drawer full of Hugh Jackman penned Classics and waiting. There just did mustn't be enough pain yet. <laughs> not, a, not enough synthesized pain for me to be able to put it into a song. It's just generalized Fair uh, stuff. But maybe I'll get there. When was the first time you realized you could sing, like properly sing, not just you know singing something in the shower, a couple of songs? Um, but you were really good at it. Uh, I don't. I've always felt that I was a better actor than a singer. So I thought I was better off in a song that had something to say, had an emotional state that I could feel that I, I was leading acting chin first. If <laughs> right, yeah. Um, There's and a lot I of had some moments, well. I remember singing something from Chess. I could feel it really working. That was a drama school. When I was doing Oklahoma here, there were some moments that I was like, oh, this, I just feel right at home. But there's just as many times where... I started to feel more on stage. Like I, while I was on stage doing musicals like Beauty and the Beast or Sunset Boulevard or Oklahoma where I'd get asked to go and sing like at the uh, Bledisloe Cup at the national anthem in front of 90,000 people and I <laughs> literally had a panic attack the night before. Oh, my God, really? Uh, and I felt like a complete fraud. So, if, Or if someone at a dinner party said, oh, Hugh, get up and sing, I'd be like, and my wife, every time she has three drinks, she's like, oh, my, oh, my husband sings, sing a song, come on. <laughs> She's like one of those frustrated singers. She will sing a song and she will say, she doesn't understand why everyone doesn't sing a song. And I was like, oh, kick him. Say, no. And I used to get, I'm like, I'm not that kind of singer. I'm not a real singer. I'm just pretending. Like I'm, so for a long time, I felt like a fraud. And I think the most comfortable I've been probably uh, was when I did my own one man show. 
Okay. And then yeah. into this. I the think. Boy from Oz or the, uh, no, or the one you did recently, um, the, the Broadway one? The, yeah, my yeah, yeah. show, my okay. show. Okay, Because it was incredibly self-indulgent. Yeah. I was picking songs that I loved that totally suited my voice <laughs> that I enjoyed singing. My rule was if the, if the orchestra started up and I, and I didn't feel like, oh, I love this song, okay. then I would cut it. Oh, well, that that's the way to go. That yeah. is the way to go. Um, we talked uh, earlier on about great entrances in movies, and you know, there's there's huge importance to Barnum's entrance in this, and to you know Logan's entrance in in Logan. I love the fact that the, the, his entrance in Logan, where he comes up from the limo, limousine, and the very first thing we hear from the, your mouth is the F word. Yes. Suddenly we know we're in <laughs> completely different territory. Yeah. Uh, how important is it for you to have a great entrance and, and to nail that? Uh, yeah, I'm big on entrances. I'm very aware when I go onto a set, even if it's day 35 and I know it's the introduction of a character, it's huge. Um, and I learned that actually on X-Men 1. Mm. Uh, I think it took me a little while to get into the character of Logan and, and thankfully Brian held back that opening scene in the cage. That bar fighting scene was the la- one of the last things we did. Right. And uh, physically, I was in better shape than when I began. And also, I just had... The beer got it gone. Yeah, the beer got it gone. Damn it. Um, it just... I think it's really important. The impression you set an audience in every way carries through the rest of the film. I mean, Cape Fear, when you see De Niro in that cell doing push-ups or pull-ups or something... Mm-hmm you're frightened of him for the rest of the movie, even when he's been completely charming, you know. Mm. So it's important. For, but beyond my own character, this, I'm in the opening frame of the movie and it's the beginning of the show. We deliberately wanted to make people go, what? Like they're settled in, eating their popcorn. <laughs> I wanted their mouth to be open, half-chewed popcorn kind of dribbling out of their mouth. And Michael was like, I want people to go, what the hell is going on? I didn't expect this. <laughs> this is not the world I expected. Okay. And take them a bit by surprise. So the music, the boom, boom, yeah. that whole thing yeah. um, was just designed to really whack people between yeah. the eyes and go, this is the ride you're in for. Get ready. This is not your grandmother's musical. No. That kind of thing. But I can hear the studio. Grandmothers will love it, though. <laughs> All are welcome to The Greatest Showman. All are welcome. All are welcome. Um, just, a, just a very last thing before we finish. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Marvel have announced a scripted Wolverine podcast. Uh, this was announced yesterday as a 10-part thing. They're going to try and uh, emulate the success of Serial. So it's a murder mystery yeah. set up in the Alaskan wastes with Wolverine as one of the uh, – Logan as one of the uh, the suspects yes. in this thing. And he's going to be voiced by Richard Armitage. Now – do you feel even even slightly in your metal bones, just a little bit of jealousy about that, that someone else is going to be playing Wolverine, even on a podcast? No. <laughs> no. I don't. You're done. No. That's I, it, you're out. I always thought, like, hey, by the way, not only do Grey Scott, but I know Russell Crowe was offered the part. I know I was coming deep. I was offered the part at one point. <laughs> I was not only coming off the bench, deep on the bench. <laughs> I let that ego go. I don't care. Like, I, and in a way, I'm excited to see what other people do with it. You know, people say, what do you think of Tom Hardy? I go, I would love to see Tom Hardy. Like, he would be amazing. But mm. I also feel confident enough to say, I, you can't take away what I did either. Whether you like it or not, that's done. And that's sort of there. I, I don't. And I do know about this particular thing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew mm-hmm. about it in development. Okay, and okay. I, I'm being careful as I speak because I'm not sure how much I should have known. All oh, right, okay. There was a sneaky email or two from people I know in that process like, hey, Would are you? you interested? Could this be a cool little addendum? And a little part yeah. of me thought, that's cool. And then another part of me was like, no, let someone else do it. <laughs> so that's why I answer so definitively. And the very last thing, I, I asked uh, Jim Mangle this morning, we had him on for the Logan Spoiler special. Uh, at any point, was there pressure from within the studio to have that beautiful last shot and you hold the last shot, the, the cross has become an X on Logan's grave and you hold for ages and then all of a sudden you just hear, let me out. What did he say? He said no. Yeah. <laughs> he was a little bit more profane perhaps. Than that. <laughs> but uh, I'm just no. saying, you know, would you be interested in Recording, let me out, so we can just dub I it think over. That could be really fun. <laughs> I think maybe for the DVD extras. I was only kidding. <laughs> I didn't take all that liquid, green liquid. I'm kidding. I'm better. <laughs> it just reminds me of the Monty Python. Oh Bring my out, god, dead. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> I got better. <laughs> Shut up. No, he's not. <laughs> Boom, he is now. Uh, amazing. Hugh Jackman on that it's note. great to see you, man. It's always good for a <laughs> laugh. Thanks. Thanks very much. Cheers, man. And that's it from this Hugh Jackman interview special. Uh, we're filling the void again next week with our View of the Year special. That's going to be up January 29th, Friday, January 29th. The regular podcast is back on Jan 5th with Joe Wright and Andrea Riseborough. Our Star Wars The Last Jedi spoiler special with director Ryan Johnson is up on January 15th. And Denis Villeneuve joins us for a Blade Runner 2049 spoiler special at long last. That'll be up around the end of Jan to coincide with that film's DVD and Blu-ray release. So you're going to have something to listen to even while we are selling ourselves in front of a Christmas tree, which is nice. Until next time, I'm Chris Hewitt. I'm off to listen to the Greatest Showman soundtrack. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.